Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this warm place to be, to worship, to enjoy you, uh, to hear from you. Uh, God, pray again, as you are so faithful to do, work by your Holy Spirit in our lives through your word for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it started out as a friendly volleyball game. It was uh, the Friday of Thanksgiving, I was down in Kansas City with my family. Uh, it's always the Jackson family reunion. And uh, it was a beautiful afternoon, and so we decided to break out the volleyball net, and we got the lines out, and, and the, the kids and the adults are all playing together volleyball, uh, and we're having a great time. My, my sister Kim and I are always on separate teams because we're probably the two that are most familiar with volleyball, and so we try to help orchestrate those teams. And so my sister's on the other team, and she's, you know, encouraging people and coaching them and saying, okay, you know, make sure you hit the ball in the air. Don't hit it straight forward, stuff like that. Call the ball, like call it, like so it doesn't just drop in the middle, things like that. I'm doing the same thing on my side, trying to encourage, trying to coach, and we're playing, and things are going well, and then it, then it happened. A family member says, Dan, quit bossing people around, right? Like, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, uh, but it happens to me. And, and so the way I responded is I just shut down. I'm like, if I, can't, if I can't encourage and coach, if I can't say anything right, I'm just going to say nothing at all for the rest of the day. And that's how I responded in that situation. You know, confrontation is hard. Uh, it's hard to be confronted. It's hard to confront others and you wonder, like, is it even worth it? Is this even something that, that Christians should do? Or should we just take the ostrich approach and stick our head in the sand and pretend like everything's okay? What we're going to learn from today's passage is confrontation is actually a gift of God's grace. It's a ministry that he has called us into in order, in order to share his redemption with others. And today's passage will instruct us how we do that and why we do that and where we do that. If you would, please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's page 263 in the Red Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, just to give you a brief recap uh, of where we've been, uh, David has been blessed by the Lord as king over Israel. They've expanded their territory over the entire promised land. Uh, everything seems to be going well until last week. Last week in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the trajectory of David's life and really the life of the kingdom takes a pretty drastic turn. Uh, David does not go out with his men to fight in the war. Instead, he stays at home. Uh, and so he doesn't follow the, the calling of, of God to lead his people into battle. But he stays at home and he is walking on the rooftop, enjoying the summer breeze, looking down over the city. And he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba who is bathing. It's part of her uh, ceremonial ritual 
uh, that the scriptures call her to do uh, after a certain season of the month. And so she's bathing and David sees her and instead of bouncing his eyes away from her, he fixates on her and he inquires of her. And he is told that this woman is Bathsheba and that she is the daughter and the granddaughter of some of David's closest advisors. Furthermore, she is the wife of one of his faithful soldiers who is fighting on the front line. Right there, David should have ended it, but he continued with his intentions, he brought Bathsheba to himself. He lay with her, and then a few weeks go by, and he gets the message from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant. David, again, could have said, you know what? I need to come clean. I need to repent. I need to confess my sin. But instead of doing that, he decided to do this massive cover-up that ends in the death of Uriah as well as other soldiers in war. And so David has now kept this all a secret, uh, between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, it has been about eight months. David has not repented of his sin, and he has uh, thought he has gotten away with mur murder, literally, as well as with adultery. But now God decides by his grace to not let David continue in that silence and in that misery. But he comes to confront David through the prophet Nathan. So let's start by looking at verses 1 through 6 of the chapter, and we'll continue on a little bit later. Actually, 1 through the first, first part of verse 7. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1 through 7. And the Lord sent, to Nathan, sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, done one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Which he had brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Again, we come to a passage today that is not so Christmassy, uh, but in reality, uh, it applies to a lot of the Christmas gatherings that we might get together with this Christmas season, especially if we get together with family. Whenever we get together with family or with friends, you know, there always seems to be some tension, some frustration, some, someone that is doing something that is causing disjointedness within the family. Or we get together with someone we haven't seen for a long time and you know that they are doing something in their life that is self-destructive and you just don't know how to go about talking to them about this self-destructive sin in their life. What we find in today's passage is that although confronting another person is not easy, these encounters are an instrument of God's redemptive grace. And we can impart God's grace through these confrontations, but we can also receive God's grace by others confronting us 
about our own sins. So let's look at the passage today and see the hope uh, that is found in interventions such as the one we see today. So first, we have the confronting of our sin. Verse 1 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Notice this is the initiative, not of Nathan, but it is the initiative of the Lord himself. The Lord, by his grace, is pursuing the heart of David. God is done letting David suffer in his done letting David suffer in his misery and in his silence and in his sin. And so so God is going to expose David's sin through the prophet Nathan for the good of David. So verse 1 again through verse 3. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him. So he tells him this story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. For this poor man, this ewe lamb was not merely livestock. It was a pet. It was, it was, it was, it was a, something that was very close to him. You know, many of you have a dog or a pet of some sort, and you know how close you can become to them, how they can be like one of the family, and, and when you lose them, you go through a time of grieving. Uh, personally, we have a dog named Charlie. Here's a picture of Charlie right up there. That's Charlie, our dog, and uh, she is the best dog ever, just so you know. But, uh, but Charlie has more pictures taken of her than anyone else in our family has pictures taken of them. Uh, Charlie gets more hugs and kisses from the kids than mom and dad get from them. Uh, When the kids come home from camp, uh, they get in the door and they run right past mom and dad uh, to snuggle up with Charlie. Uh, Dogs, especially a good dog, as many of you understand, is a precious gift from God. Now, cats, that is debatable, um, but dogs, uh, sorry, uh, we can talk about that later, but... (laughs) Did I get some amens? I got some amens, I think. Um, but, but, but that pet, you know, it becomes a part of the family. The poor man had this single ewe lamb, and, and he would eat it. He'd feed it out of the bowl. They'd drink from the same cup. And then it literally says that the ewe lamb would lie in his arms. He would cuddle with this. And it was like a daughter to him. And so that was the relationship with this single ewe lamb. But this rich man, he had lots of livestock. He had an abundance of livestock. They were just really pieces of meat floating around until you could put barbecue sauce on them. That's what they were to him. Verse 4 continues. It says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. You know, when we look at this story, we wonder, why would he take this other guy's ewe lamb when he has so many? I think automatically we assume it was just greed, and maybe it was. He didn't want to sacrifice some of his own wealth for this traveler. He wanted to take it from this poor guy. But I can't help but wonder if maybe that ewe lamb was more attractive to him than the rest of his flock because that ewe lamb had been so cared for and loved that it was a more beautiful lamb than everything that he had. Nonetheless, it continues. Verse 5 through 6 says, 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's response to this story is a little bit over the top. He gets part of it right. You see, in Exodus 22, 1, it says, If a man steals a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay four sheep for a sheep. And so David gets this right. He took this, this guy's ewe lamb. The, the, the rich guy should give him four lambs in return. He gets this right. But where David goes over the top is he says, This guy who stole this pet should be put to death. He is worthy of capital punishment, which is way over the top because it's not like this man killed someone else or committed adultery with someone else, both of which was punishable by death under the law. David is furious with this selfish, arrogant, rich man crying out for his death. And then we get to verse 7, a short application from Nathan. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, we don't know how Nathan said this. We don't know if he said it with like vengeance, like, you are the man. Or if he said, David, you are the man. That's you. Whatever the case, David is worse than the man in this story. Because David is not simply taking someone's pet. He is taking someone's wife and sleeping with her and impregnating her and then killing her husband to try to get away with it. Again, Old Testament law says all of this is punishable by death. And so David, as he is pronouncing this judgment upon the rich man, unbeknownst to him, is pronouncing judgment upon himself. And Nathan then exposes that to David. Now, as we look at the way that Nathan confronted David about his sin, there are several things that we can that we can glean for our, own, uh, for our own lives as we think about how we might need to confront others about certain things. Uh, there are five things I'll point out to you quickly, I promise. The first is this, is that Nathan was sent by God. Uh, this was not something that was just reactionary and, and violent, but he was prompted by God to go and to confront Nathan. And in the same way, we should be ready to be led by God, to be sensitive to the Spirit, to go and confront someone about their sin. Secondly, Nathan was a courageous man. I mean, it always takes courage to confront someone, doesn't it? it? It takes a lot of courage to confront someone about their sin because potentially they could say, I'm done with you. I don't want to have anything to do with you, right? But especially for Nathan. I mean, Nathan is going to confront the king of Israel. He's going to confront a man that knows how to make people disappear, Right? If, if David would kill Uriah, what is to say that David would not kill Nathan? And yet Nathan took courage to go and to confront David. The third thing we see here is that it takes wisdom when you're confronting another person. You know, David had a seared conscience when it came to his sin. He, he, he was hard-hearted in it. He had kept it inside. And Nathan knew that, that David's heart, that David's emotions needed to be spurred a little bit. And so he tells David this story to, to spur his emotions, to, to revitalize his heart a little bit. But what else is interesting, and this is so true of all of us, David, or, sorry, uh, uh, 
Nathan knew that it would be easier for David to see the awfulness of sin in another person than to see it in himself. And so he tells this story to show what this man does. And so Nathan uh, approaches David in a very uh, wise and, and gentle and humble way to confront his sin. Now, I don't think this approach is prescriptive, meaning we're not commanded every time we go to confront someone about something, we need to tell them a story. It might be good to do so, but you don't have to be like, okay, there was a guy with like a hundred dogs and a guy with a puppy, right? You don't have to start every confrontation that way. But what this is showing us is that you have to do it with wisdom, even maybe with some creativity, uh, I have a good friend. I, I'm, I'm bad at this. And so I have a good friend. And, and whenever I need to have a hard conversation with someone, uh, a lot of times I'll call up my friend and be like, hey, you know, I'm not sure how to approach this. Can you help me think through this, how to do this? And nine times out of 10, they'll say, well, did you think about this? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So that I can approach it in a way that is thoughtful uh, and, and wise and also gentle and loving and helpful to the conversation, not to shut it down. And so we should confront the sin of others as one sent by God with courage and with wisdom. But the fourth thing we see here, and this leads us into verses 7 through 8, is that when we confront others, we should also remind them of the goodness of God. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. It says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. You know, at first it seems like maybe uh, Nathan is guilt tripping David. As if like, you know, God has done all this good stuff for you and this is how you repay him. That's what it might appear at first glance. But what Nathan is actually doing here is he is reminding David of the kindness and the goodness and the love of God. Uh, Romans 2 says it this way. It says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so, you know, there will be times where, you know, let's say this never happens, but let's say we're sitting around dinner table and one of my kids would say, you know what, uh, I don't like this food, right? Mom spends two hours cooking. I don't like this food. And my temptation says, you don't like this food? Great. You won't eat the rest of your life, right? That's like how I would probably try to respond. Uh, but, but instead of doing that, what, what Nathan's teaching us, we need to point them to the goodness of God. We need to point others to the goodness of God. Say, look, this food is a provision from God who cares about you and loves you and wants to provide for every single one of your needs. You know, when we cease to be thankful and satisfied for the things that God has given to us, that's when we go and try to pursue something that doesn't belong to us. And so Nathan reminds David of the goodness of God, says, listen, he has given you everything you need and almost everything you want. You do not have to go elsewhere to satisfy your soul. The, the, as we continue on here, the fifth thing that, that Nathan did is that, is that Nathan reveals to David the seriousness of his sin. Yes, he uses creative methods, but he also says bluntly and directly to make sure David understands that this was not simply a misstep or a miscalculation or a mistake, but this is a big deal. And so he makes sure David knows the seriousness of his sin. Look at verse 9. He says, Why have you despised, literally, why have you scorned the word of the Lord 
to do what is evil, evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I mentioned this to you last week as we looked at chapter 11, but within this one chapter, David breaks pretty much uh, the majority of the Ten Commandments. Uh, David, uh, David worships the false god of sexuality. He covets his neighbor's wife. He steals his neighbor's wife. He commits adultery with his neighbor's wife. He bears false testimony to cover up his adultery, and he murders Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Again, as I said, if, if David was alive today, uh, he'd be taken out of political office and thrown in prison and maybe even be put to death for the murder that he was guilty of. And so Nathan says these hard words so that David will understand the seriousness of his sin, so that David will repent of his sin and seek to sin no more. And so just to recap, confronting of sin is a vital part of a Christian calling, but we're called to confront with prayer, with gentleness, with love, with compassion, with wisdom, reminding people of the goodness of God and the seriousness of sin, but also of its consequences. And that takes us to the second point, much shorter than the first point, the consequences of our sin. Verse 10 says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. As we walk through these verses, verses 10 through 12, you'll see that the consequences of David's sin match what David did uh, as he sinned. So, so here you see, uh, it says that the sword will not depart from David's house. The, David used the sword to, to kill Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. And so also the sword will bring destruction on the house of David. David's sons, Amon, Absalom, Adonijah, will all die by the sword as a consequence of David's sin. Verse 11 continues and says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. If you know the rest of the story, it gets very messy in the house of David. David's son, Amon, rapes his daughter, Tamar. Another son, Absalom, murders Amon for doing that. And then Absalom conspires to overthrow David's throne, and David has to go on a run for his life. And so just as David had brought chaos and calamity into the household of Uriah, now it would come into his own household. Verse 11 continues. It says, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. We actually read of this happening in 2 Samuel chapter 16 when David's son Absalom sleeps with David's concubines on a roof in sight of all. This is part of the consequences of David's sin. See, often the severity of the consequences are relational to the severity of the sin. And it's when we understand that sin has severe and serious consequences that we can then understand that God's law is a gift of grace to keep us from the miserable consequences of our sin. You know, if you're in here early, you may have saw the countdown timer. It's a video of our fireplace at home. We have had a wood-burning stove in our house, even at our last house, for several years. And when the kids were really little, 
uh, I would take them over to the fireplace and I would say, hey, listen, don't touch that fireplace, right? I'd give them this law. I'd give them this rule. I'd give them this command. Don't touch the fireplace. And the reason why I would tell them not to touch that scolding hot fireplace wasn't because I was trying to ruin their fun. It's because I wanted the best for them. Because whether you are a Christian or not, if you touch a hot fireplace, there's going to be consequences to that, right? In the same way, when we choose to sin against God, and we all do, there are consequences to that sin. And so God gives us his law as a gift of grace, not to take life from us, but to give us life to the fullest. Say, do not do these things because then you will suffer the consequences of them. You know, after, I, th I think it's after this encounter, uh, David writes Psalm 19. And this is what David says about the commands of God, the law of God. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Is that how you describe the Ten Commandments, that it's reviving to the soul? He said, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. You know, someone said this to us in Bible study. We might be tempted to call them a legalist. But here David says, listen, God's law is a gift of his grace to warn you against sin that has devastating consequences. And so Nathan is telling David that which we also need to be reminded of, that God is good, his law is perfect, and disobedience has consequences. The final part of this passage is the confession of sin in verse 13. And uh, there's a lot here, and so there's kind of two halves of verse 13. The first half is an acknowledgement of sin. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, David's, David's confession is short, but there's a lot here. There's, there's a few things I want to point out. He starts by, David said to Nathan, I. Uh, David is not blame shifting his sin. He is not saying, you know what, God, it takes two to tango. Uh, Bathsheba should not have been bathing where she was bathing. You gave me these urges, God. He wasn't blaming Bathsheba. He wasn't blaming God. He wasn't blaming the situation. He says, I, he's taking ownership of his sin. Furthermore, with Uriah, he doesn't say, you know, it was Joab that sent him to the front lines to kill him. It was, it was the Ammonites that, 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 that really put him to death. No, he owns his sin. He says, I. He continues. He says, I have sinned. This word sin is not very popular today. It's a term that people don't like to use. But it's important that we understand sin as sin. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a step backward. It is sin. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, David sinned against Uriah. Yes, David sinned against Bathsheba. But every sin that we do is ultimately against the Lord. And that's why Nathan the prophet said to David just a little bit earlier, he says that you have scorned the word of the Lord and you have done evil in the sight of the Lord. And so in the first half of this verse, David acknowledges and owns his, his sin against the Lord. And then in the second half, we hear an amazing response from Nathan the prophet as we hear about the absolution or the forgiveness of sin. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Again, David's sin is egregious. It is horrible. And David makes this small little confession. And he gets this amazing response of mercy, saying that the Lord has put away your sin. Now, what does it mean that the Lord has put away David's sin? Well, one way to translate it is that the Lord has transferred your sin. Transferred your sin from you to another, and you shall not die because your penalty will be transferred to another. But who is David's sin transferred to? Who is the penalty for David's sin transferred to? And what we'll find out is that it is actually transferred to David's son. I wasn't going to bring up this verse today because it opens up a can of worms. We'll talk more about it next week. But look at verse 14. It says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have, tr- you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David's sin had consequences. And those consequences, as often, is generational. It had effect on his children. And because of David's sin, his child would die. You know, when we look at this, we may say, how is this fair? How is this just? How is this right? How is this okay? I mean, this child has done nothing wrong. Why would this child die for the sins of David? But here's the thing. You are that man. I am that man. In the Bible, it says the wages of sin is death. And there would come another son of David a thousand years later, a baby who we will celebrate in two weeks. And he is the one and only perfect son of God. He is the beloved you lamb of the father who has never, ever sinned. And yet God has put away our sin onto him, has transferred our sin upon to him to pay for our sin upon the cross, to take on our death penalty and then to rise again from the dead. It does not seem fair because it is not fair, but this is the grace and mercy of God towards you in Christ so that we can hear the same assurance of pardon that David did. The Lord has put away your sin you shall not die. You know, as I look at, at verse 13 and David's repentance, it's such a small snippet of this whole narrative. It's just six words in English. I have sinned against the Lord. It seems a little bit pathetic, to be honest with you. It seems a little simplistic. And yet, what's amazing about our God is just the simplest, sincerest confession of sin is always responded to by the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. You know, we have this online streaming now, and and it's not just public. You guys may know this, but you have to go onto our website. You go to the bottom, and you click on a thing that says online streaming for Sunday mornings, and you have to fill out this form. You just put in your name and your email address, hit submit, and then automatically, automatically an email is sent to you with the link for the Sunday morning service. What's amazing about God is that when we come to him to confess our sin, it is automatic. I mean, it's gracious and wonderful, but but God has never, ever, ever, ever in the history of the world turned away anyone who has come to him genuinely confessing their sin, repenting, and turning to Christ for their salvation. His grace and mercy is poured out on those who simply say, I have sinned against the Lord. Friends, have you said this to the Lord your God ever? Have you said it recently? 
Have you said these six simple words? I have sinned against the Lord. Say that and then look to the cross and see where the Passover lamb, the you lamb, has taken upon your sin and your penalty of sin and died on your behalf so that you can live forever and ever with the God of glory and his kingdom in heaven. Let me end with this. I, I have a, a pastor friend in town that I meet with on uh, a regular basis, and we, were, uh, we, we meet together just to encourage one another, check in, how you doing, pray for one another, things like that. And, and he said to me, you know, Dan, uh, could, I, could I talk to you about something? I'm like, sure. He said, there's something in your, that I see in your, a pattern in your life that I'm, I'm concerned about. Is it, and I could be wrong, but could I talk to you about it? I'm like, sure, please do so. And so he, he said, hey, I, I see this thing in your life, and I, I, it doesn't look healthy. It doesn't look right to me. And, and I'm like, man, you're right. You're right. Like, I, I'm guilty, uh, and, I, I need, and I'm so thankful that my friend did that. And, and I said to him, I said, listen, you don't ever have to ask permission again. Like, if you ever see something in my life, you ever see sin that, that, that's going on that I'm blind to that I don't know about, you have full permission to always call me out on my sin because I know that my sin is not only hurtful to me and to my family, but it actually keeps me from enjoying Jesus more. So you always have permission to call me out on my sin. You see, I think it's so important for us to deputize people to be Nathans in our life. To say to people, you have full permission whenever you want to tell me when you think I am doing something that is not consistent with God's word because I want to grow closer to Jesus and this is how it happens. You know, thankfully, I've had many of you in the congregation who sat down with me and confronted me about sin in my life and, and, and you've done it graciously and winsomely and wisely and I'm so thankful that you do that because if that did not happen, I would be stunted in my spiritual growth. We need Nathans in our life. But we also need to be a Nathan in the life of others. And to be honest with you, this is harder for me than to receive the confrontation. See, I grew up in a household where confrontation never ended well. It always ended explosively and horrendously in, in awful ways. And so I tried for many years to avoid conflict at all costs. But what I'm reminded of here is that God prompts us by his spirit. He gives us courage to go and to confront people not to make them feel bad about themselves, but so that they can find the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ and be set free and enjoy Jesus more and more and more. And so as we think about this passage, maybe it's an opportunity to say, Lord, who do I need to deputize in my life to be a Nathan, to call me out on anything that they see? And, and Lord, who do I need to be a Nathan to? to wisely and graciously and lovingly and compassionately go to them and say, listen, there's some things in your life that I'm concerned about and to talk to them about it. Because the hope is, is, is that as that we enter into this holy calling of confronting one another, that we together as a community would become holier and happier in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this is a... Uh, Another tough passage to walk through, but one that we so desperately need, God. Lord, I pray that if, if people come to talk to us because they have concerns about, about things that we're doing, God, that we would be receptive, even if they're not 
right or 100% right, that we would be receptive and thankful that they would have the courage to come to talk to us. And yet, God, we also pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would prompt us, you would prompt us when it is wise to go and to talk to people, not to nitpick every sin, not to confront people 100% of the time, all day long, but that we would be guided by your Holy Spirit when to go and talk to someone for their good and for your glory. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.